Hi, this is Sally Sykes, and welcome back to the I Love Labs podcast. Uh, this third episode, I thought with Thanksgiving and all the holidays coming up, I would talk more about insulin resistance. I talked somewhat about it in a last week's episode about GLP-1 medications like semaglutide, terzepatide, otherwise known as Ozempic, Manjaro, Wigovi. Um, but I wanted to go uh, a little deeper for those of you who are trying to lose weight or reverse insulin resistance, prevent cardiometabolic disease without those medications, because um, these have not always been around and uh, reversing those diseases. Um, it is possible, although it's a little harder without those medications, it is possible. And I did it myself when I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes many years ago. Um and um, I want to tell you just kind of a little bit about my own journey, reversing insulin resistance, and um, just talk about um, strategies for maintaining and meeting our health goals, even during the holidays, because sometimes um, I think the statistics on how much weight Americans gain between you know October and January of every year is like five to 10 pounds or something. And so it's a struggle time for a lot of us. Um, we're surrounded by a lot of food. There's a lot of pressure from family um, and it can be hard. Um, and there's a lot of stress, right? Especially on um, moms and women, the mental load of making the holidays magical often falls on us. And um, we're working full-time jobs and taking care of kids. It can also take <laughs> kind of take the magic out of it for us sometimes. Um, and then sometimes we turn to food to deal with that. And so just kind of um, having a real conversation about the, the background of insulin resistance and carbs and type two diabetes and weight gain um, and uh, my own journey on it. So, um, so several years ago, I mean, I think it was when I was around 40, um, I started having issues with just extreme fatigue, um, especially in the afternoons, you know, insomnia, sleep disturbances, um, and I just felt like my brain was a little foggy. And um, many of you know, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and passed away when he was 67 in 2014. Um, and when I started to look into it, I realized after reading Dr. Dale Bredesen's book, The End of Alzheimer's, that one of the many underlying causes of Alzheimer's disease and uh, cognitive decline is diabetes and high blood sugar, that basically having diabetes doubles your risk of dementia. So I started to uh, take my own health a little more seriously, um, got a blood sugar monitor, realized that I was diabetic, started working with a doctor and lowered my carb intake quite a bit. Um, it was not easy, you guys. Um, I mean, you're talking to someone who grew up in the 80s and maybe a lot of you are the same way um, with fat-free was the way to go, right? We were told that fat was bad, um, that, you know, snack wells and candy corn were a health food because they were fat-free. Um, and, and I'll tell you what that did to me, um, you know, years basically through my thirties of high carb dieting. And my mom was actually great at keeping healthy food around, um, as far as the vegetables. But as soon as I got out on my own, I was pretty much eating carbs, gluten, sugar, um, alcohol at that point. Um, and dairy. So a pretty high inflammatory diet. So it is no surprise that by 40, I had developed type two diabetes. My fasting blood sugar was often, you know, well above 132. Um, and sometimes in the two fifties, uh, when I was measuring it, and that is a real problem. Um, and that is from a lifetime of high carb dieting. So it took me a long time to get there and to do that metabolic damage to my body. And it took me a long time to reverse it. And I'm still 
in the process of doing that. I call myself carb intolerant and that um, basically it's like being an alcoholic in remission in a sense. I'm a carb addict and a sugar addict in remission and I can keep my diabetes at bay and reversed as long as I do not go back to eating the way that I did. And I stay on course with a low carb, high good fat, high protein, anti-inflammatory, nutrient-dense way of eating that is long-term for the rest of my life. Um, the easy thing about this is there is no calorie counting. I am never hungry. Um, it is extremely nutrient-dense because it, when you get rid of gluten and processed carbs, you, ought to, you make room automatically for a lot of the foods that we know we ought to be eating more of, right? Um, berries, nuts, seeds, vegetables, um, especially the non-starchy vegetables. If you're um, kind of an insulin resistant like I am, um, high quality meat, fish, eggs, poultry. Um, and you just, I, I can't tell you how much better I feel now at 50 than I did in my twenties when I was in law school. I look at old pictures of myself and I just look really inflamed. Um, I was, I was definitely heavier, um, but I was just poofy. Like I could just see that the, just the, the carb inflammation in my face. And I just, um, I will say that my mental health and cognition is light years away. And I thought I was, you know, those were good years and I was happy. But when I look back now, I think, um, just my, my energy is so much more sustained throughout the day. I don't have these crashes that I just had grown up thinking that was normal, um, to just crash and have constant sugar cravings all the time in the afternoon. Um, the insomnia that came with it, um, just feeling like I would hit a wall uh, when I was in law school, especially trying to read books and just feeling like, um, ultimately I was diagnosed with ADHD and was on Adderall for many years for that. I don't have to take that anymore. Um, it is, it's, it's been a journey, but I will say that it was, it was not easy um, changing that lifestyle because it was so different from anything that I had ever done. And look, it was extremely different from what the American government has told us to do. If anybody is old enough to remember the food pyramid, I think they have retired that and gone to something called my plate. I don't even, I don't know how good that is even, but the old food pyramid, you guys, the base of the pyramid, which they were telling you to eat most of was grains and bread had little pictures of like a baguette and pasta and that that was what you were supposed to eat most of and that at the tippy top of the pyramid was fats and oils you're supposed to eat very little of well that's a recipe we know now know for diabetes and you know all of the chronic diseases of aging that stem from high blood sugar and insulin resistance and diabetes which are cardiometabolic disease so cardiovascular disease heart attacks heart, heart failure diabetes stroke dementia um even autoimmune disease right very linked to gluten exposure um and inflammation and so but this is we were doing what we were told right stay away from the fat eat your pasta and eat your bread. Um, and here we are with obesity rates and diabetes rates higher than they've ever been. Um, so after being told that for so many years, it's really hard to wrap your head around a different way of eating. Um, but as soon as I did it um, and I got to the point where I started feeling better, um, I I never went back. It was became its own self-reinforcing um, way, of, way of living. Um, 
And, but the beginning was really hard. And I'll talk about that for a minute for any of you who are starting out lowering your carbs, um, whether you're on semaglutide or not. Um, so what I found in the first couple of months is that as I lowered my carbs, I experienced some extreme fatigue. And in fact, I was on the tennis court one day and I, I thought I was going to pass out and I thought, oh, I must have really low blood sugar because I've lowered my carbs and maybe I've just lowered them too much. And I went up to the CVS and I bought a finger prick glucose monitor and the pharmacist helped me teach me how to do it. We took my blood sugar and it was 132, which is extremely high diabetic range. And I was fasting. And so I, um, at that point realized that it was, my blood sugar was still high. It just was maybe a little bit lower than it had been, but my body was experiencing that as maybe low blood sugar. But the other thing I learned is that my body didn't yet know how to burn fat for fuel, either from the fat I was eating or the fat on my body. At that point, I had some decent amount of visceral fat and some fatty liver going on. And so um, I realized, okay, it takes a while for the body to remember that it can also burn fat for fuel as well as carbohydrates or sugar. And all of our bodies know how to do this, but after a lifetime of high carb eating, our bodies really have never had to do it. And they sort of forget that we have this deep freeze of, of fat stores that we can draw from when glucose goes low. And that's actually the optimal way to be. It's called metabolic flexibility that you're able to burn glucose when you have it. But when you don't have it, you just switch tanks, so to speak. And you're able to start burning fat for fuel, either from the fat that you're consuming or from your body, if you have it stored. And that leads to very nice, stable blood sugar. And I think I've mentioned this before in other podcasts that you, Dr. Mark Hyman says, you want to try to keep your blood sugar between 70 and 120, even after you've eaten. So if you eat something and you're testing your blood sugar and it goes over 120, that's maybe too high of a carb meal for you. Or maybe you need to try to eat more fat and protein before you eat that meal. Um, I realized that when I eat a smoothie, just on an empty stomach, my blood sugar will go too high. But if I eat my bacon and eggs first, and then my smoothie, my blood sugar stays stable because I basically padded it with that fat and protein first to slow down the blood sugar spike. Um, so they're little hacks that, that you can learn. Um, but the fatigue was really intense. And so what I ended up doing, I upgraded my glucose monitor from the fingerprint and glucose one to one called Keto Mojo. And I'm not a sponsor of Keto Mojo. I'm just telling you my experience with them. Um, and the reason I went with them is because they have strips that test your blood sugar, but also test your ketones. Because once I learned that my body was essentially learning how to burn fat for fuel and be more, um, metabolically flexible, I was curious at what point my body would start to make ketones um, so that I could see that. And I like data anyway, as you guys know. Um, so I started doing that and I noticed I, I really, I wasn't making ketones yet at all. My blood sugar was still pretty high, so, but after several weeks of lowering my carbs, I finally started to get a tiny bit of ketones. And when I was fasting in the morning and then I would eat and they would go down and then in the next day, as long as I had continued to keep my carbs around hundred total carbs a day, um, they kept coming down. My blood sugar started coming down into that normal range. And as it did, my ketones in the morning when I was fasting would come up a little bit into a tiny therapeutic range, like 0.5, right? One maybe, um, which is really actually super healthy and um, anti-inflammatory and really good for the brain. And I noticed when I, when I had the higher, my ketones were obviously you don't want them crazy high, like 12 or something, but you know, but even between zero and five is a therapeutic range. Um, I noticed in the morning that I had 
a lot of mental clarity. And I've read this, you know, a lot of you know, Silicon Valley CEOs talking about intermittent fasting and ketosis. And um, I wasn't doing a ketogenic diet and I don't actually recommend it or think it's necessary, um, but getting to where you're metabolically fle flexible enough to make some ketones every day. Um, if you're doing some intermittent fasting that happens naturally in the mornings, it's, um, it's a great feeling. And that also helped to, um, treat my ADHD sort of naturally, I suppose. Um, just, it helped to keep my energy levels stable. And then when I did eat, I was breaking my fast with, um, you know, a high, good fat, high protein meal. That was something, you know, like eggs or high quality bacon with no nitrates in it. Um, vegetables, I really like egg salad. I know some people think that's disgusting. I love it. Um, you know, so adding olive oil to everything that I could eat. Um, chopped salad is a great way to get more olive oil in your salad. Um, and so slowly my energy started to come back and that was enormously helpful. And I really liked seeing the numbers, the, the sort of I have this, I guess, achievement wing side to me where I wanted to feel like what I was doing was having an impact on my health directly. Because look, I think anybody, any one of you who have seen a loved one or a parent suffer with a disease like Alzheimer's, um, it really wakes you up to your own health. Um, and I didn't want my kids to have to go through that. Um, and lose me too early. I want to be able to help them with the grandkids. I want to be able to carry my grocery groceries and not pull my back out. I want to be able to travel and live and um, continue to do what I'm doing, coaching, because um, I love it. Um, I don't want my life to be over at 50. I want it to start again at 50. It's, it was really helpful to start tracking the blood sugar and the ketones for a little while. This, I didn't do it forever. I maybe did it for you know six months or something because it gave me a sense of this is working. So I didn't give up too easily because when you're lowering carbs, um, the cravings can be really intense, um, you know, especially for the hyper palatable processed foods that we see in the grocery store that make up over 60% of the foods that are available to us. Um, and they're intentionally processed that way. So, and a lot of you might know this, these food companies, they're for-profit food companies, right? They answer to a board. They have to make a certain amount of money. Their motivation is to sell as much as possible and spend as little as possible on the ingredients in them. And if they can make those ingredients addictive on top of that, even better because we'll buy even more, right? So, it's not our fault that these hyper palatable processed foods are addictive. They are designed that way. Processed food companies actually employ scientists to ensure that they are, to make sure that they have the right you know, amount of sweetness, saltiness, and fat. They call that the bliss point so that we cannot just eat one. You know, Pringles has an entire ad campaign around, we bet you just bet you can't eat just one. No, we can't, right? It's designed that way. When we look at the ingredients. In, in Pringles, right? It's not even potatoes, right? They're not even allowed to call it a potato chip. They're addictive for a reason. And it can really hijack the brain, the satiety signals of the brain. Um, you don't know when you're full anymore when you eat those kind of foods. Um, and when I work with coaching clients, we, we laugh about this a lot. Like we don't have an off switch when it comes to my, my kryptonite food is candy corn. Um, 
I don't have an off switch for candy corn. Like I can eat candy corn nonstop. I don't ever get full on it. And then I think about it when I'm out for a nice dinner and I have, you know, salmon and a salad and some broccoli, I, I get full pretty fast. I can't binge eat on broccoli and salmon, right? None of us can. Um, and that's once you start to realize that and how tricky it is and how we're really kind of padding the wallets of processed food companies by continuing to buy those foods, not only that, we're making ourselves sick. And then on the back end, we're padding the wallets of the pharmaceutical companies. That was super motivating for me as well. That is not the way I want to live. Um, and so when you start to make these changes, you start to feel better. You get to open your eyes to some of these ingredients that we are, that we are dealing with um, and eating real food. Um, and it's, the, the trick with it, it's, I thought it was going to be a lot harder than it was um, socially. And I think that's, that's what I work through a lot with my coaching clients is there um, a lot of them are concerned about like, going back for Thanksgiving, right. With family, if their families are, um, you know, a lot of families, food is love and it can feel like a rejection if you don't eat someone's food that they've lovingly prepared and cooked. Um, and so we actually practice conversations, um, talking about, yeah, I just feel really better when I eat this way, as opposed to, I can't eat that that's garbage. Right. And looks beautiful. That looks amazing. Oh my gosh. Um, and focusing on the things that you can and do want to eat that are going to nourish your body, changing what it means to treat ourselves. A lot of the advertising that we see, you know, the Snickers campaign that has, you know, if it was, it was me and I was a mom at a soccer game, it would show me basically turning into a very ugly monster because I was in such a terrible mood because I hadn't eaten a Snickers that day. And then I eat my Snickers and I turn back into myself. So the message... <laughs> And the advertising is literally, no one is going to like you unless you eat a Snickers. If you don't eat Snickers, you're a bleep. And so, you know, this, this kind of, and it just seeps into our culture, right? Um, that this is treat yourself, you know, this is go, go to a fast food restaurant. This is a treat for you deserve a break that you deserve this. Um, do we, I, I don't know that we do. I, I think that you're, you know, a good person and de deserve a lot more than junk food. Um, and so just kind of challenging the, that thought process um, was was incredibly helpful for me too. And I don't like the idea of anyone profiting off of my ill health. And so that was helpful as well. Um, and And ironically, it turns out the anti-smoking campaign that worked the best was also the one that pointed out that uh, tobacco companies were profiting off of our addiction and poor health. Um, and that was that was the most, you know, none of the like hand wringing and blaming and shaming, none of that worked in the the ads for the anti-smoking campaigns. But when they pointed out, look, like these, these companies are making record profits off of you and look, you're dying early and your kids are not getting to get to know you and you're not, you're having to, you're missing out on years of work. Really? We're going to do that. So that's pretty effective. Um, and when it comes to health coaching, one of the things I try to do with myself and with my health, um, coaching clients is to find the motivation that works for each person. And everyone's a little different. For me, it's seeing my dad in a nursing home dying of Alzheimer's disease, right? That is right there in the top of my brain at, at all times. Um, but for some people, it can be, you know, wanting to be there for their kids. 
It could be for some, it's the, the way they look fine. I'll take any motivation, right? You, you want to have, you know, an in shape body and look good in your clothes. That works too. We'll take whatever motivation there is. Um, for a lot of women though, we just tend to put ourselves on the back burner and put our needs last. And so doing it for ourselves, for our own health benefit, doesn't even come close to the top of the priority list for our motivation. So for a lot of the women and the moms that I work with, um, the motivation that works best is, you know, what's this going to look like down the road for your kids if you don't get a hold of this and you are diabetic and you are getting dialysis, they have to leave their own kids to take care of you because you have dementia. Your kids now have to pay for long-term care, right? And that's motivating for me too. Um, if I don't do it for myself, can I not do it for my kids and my loved ones and my friends so I can still be around to be a good friend so I can continue coaching so that my kids don't, I'm not a burden on my children. Sometimes that will hit home. And so think about when, when you're, a lot of us know the changes that we need to make and we're just, it's getting the execution, right? It's for most people, it's getting there. It's making the actual choices and doing it every day, right? And that's the struggle. A lot of us, it's not necessarily the knowledge gap. And so, you know, if you're a journaler or if you're, you know, working with a, you know, a counselor or something like that, start diving into what your motivations might be that could push you over the edge to making just one healthier choice a week, maybe, and just pick one thing. There's a great book called Tiny Habits uh, that I read in functional medicine coaching school. And it's, um, it talks about um, a lot of times when we're trying to change habits, we bite off way too much at a time. And then we feel like a failure and we have black and white thinking about it. And I'm guilty of this as well, that if I'm not doing it perfectly, I shouldn't do it at all. And it's not worth it. Um, and so this book talks about breaking down your goal into small achievable goals so that you have a feeling of accomplishment. And I was like, that's ridiculous. I'm not, that's so dumb. I'm not going to do that, but it's really effective. I started doing this years ago with the, um, to reverse the type two diabetes, because it turns out that even just 15 minutes of walking after a meal can help stabilize blood sugar. And that's huge. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to start with, um, you know, five minutes of walking. I'm going to go get the mail. I'm just going to like walk around the block. And I thought to myself, I used to run track and cross country. That is nothing. That's ridiculous. I might as well do nothing. If I'm not going to the gym and doing a hit workout, that is just not even worth it. I'm worthless. But I was like, well, really, is it worthless? It is better than nothing. It is a start. I'm getting outside in the mornings and I'm getting, you know, sunlight on my eyeballs that is helping my circadian rhythm. And I will sleep better later that night. We know that those are scientific facts. So this is a good thing, even if it's five minutes in the morning, right? So I started there and the book uses a really funny, uh, one of their examples is that this, this one coaching client of the author, they wanted to start flossing their teeth. They weren't flossing their teeth. And so the suggestion was, you're going to start flossing one tooth a day. And they just laughed. They were like, well, that's so easy. Anybody could do that. Well, can you? Okay. So start one a day. And then they realize once they start, they just don't stop. And another one was saying, okay, every time I go to the bathroom, I'm going to do one squat. And then they worked up to, they were doing 10 squats, you know? And so it's little things like that. And it seems ridiculous and it's okay to laugh about it. But honestly, it works. It really does work. And it's okay to think it's stupid, but like do it anyway, right? <laughs> and then it, then it starts to build because you're, that's the whole point. You're building tiny habits that build into larger ones. And it's really hard to big, build and continue with 
major habit changes. If you haven't started small and if you haven't racked up some wins, I flossed one tooth. I did one squat. I walked five minutes, right? But once you've done that, you literally are giving yourself that a, a little bit of a, of a win for the day. It's better than sitting in bed or sitting on your computer, right? Because we're so sedentary these days. Um, so every little bit, even starting slow is hugely impactful. So back to insulin resistance and basically how it works. So when you eat a high carb diet, you guys, um, the way we were taught, your pancreas has to pump out more and more insulin to get that toxic sugar out of your bloodstream and stuff it into your cells. And what happens is the cells get full when we eat the kind of high carb diet that is the standard American diet. And so we continue to eat more and more carbs and sugar. The pancreas has to pump out more and more insulin to keep our blood sugar and our A1C, which is the average blood sugar over three months, about the same, right? So glucose and blood sugar can stay kind of in that normal range, not optimal, but normal range for many years. While in the background, your fasting insulin is going higher and higher and higher. And that is because the amount of insulin required to get the same amount of blood sugar out of the bloodstream is higher and higher because the same amount wasn't working anymore. Your cells don't want any more blood sugar. They're not listening, right? It's like your teenager, you're yelling at your teenager and they're not listening and you try to yell louder and it's not working. That's what's happening. So over time, your pancreas, because it's pumping out so much insulin, which by the way, is the fat storage hormone. It tells our bodies to store fat not burn it. So over time, you develop high, even high levels of insulin in your body, even when you're fasting. So weight loss becomes almost impossible. And this is the result of long-term high carb diets. And we see this all the time in labs. So if you are going to your doctor and getting labs and you're lowering your carbs and you're trying to reverse insulin resistance, you're trying to maybe uh, reverse cardiometabolic disease, uh, diabetes, and you want to track labs, make sure they're testing your glucose, which will be in your comprehensive metabolic panel, your HVA1C, your fasting insulin. You're going to also want to look at your lipids and also your HSCRP, which is high sensitivity C-reactive protein, an inflammatory marker. And when you're looking at those labs that I just mentioned, your glucose, you're going to want to go for optimal ranges, not normal ranges. So optimal range for glucose is going to be 70 to 90, 70 to 85. Optimal range for HbA1c, at least under 5.2, um, some say under five. Your fasting insulin, we're going for between three and a five. Um, your lipids for cholesterol, we're going between 150 and 200 is optimal. Below 150, we have an increased risk of cognitive decline. Over 200, there might be some inflammation, but there's some wiggle room there. Um, we want triglycerides and LDL, the quote unquote bad cholesterol, both under 100. And then your good cholesterol, HDL over 60, if we can do that. And then that HSCRP, that inflammatory marker that raises the risk of heart disease, stroke, and dementia, um, we want that below 0.9 optimally. Um, and then if you're also concerned about your lipids, try calculating your triglyceride to HDL ratio. So you take your triglycerides, divide them by your good cholesterol, your HDL. And if that ratio is 1.1 or less, 
then your risk of heart disease is considered lower. And that is because it's kind of a quick and dirty calculation for how much of your LDL is made up of the bad, small, and dense particles that we don't want that are disease promoting versus the good, yes, there's good LDL, the good LDL particles, which are large, fluffy, and non-disease promoting. So if you take your triglycerides, divide them by HDL, and that number is 1.1 or less, that means most likely that most of your LDL is made up of those large, fluffy particles that are not disease promoting. Now, if it's above that, especially if it's over two, then you're looking at a little more concern that that LDL, if it's elevated, is made up of too many of the small, dense, disease-promoting particles. So that's another hack for you. And those are all really critical for longevity, anti-aging, weight loss, um, autoimmune disease, inflammation, inflammaging. This is the, the root cause of a lot of these diseases of aging is insulin resistance, too much sugar in the blood. You guys... Most of us don't know this. I certainly didn't. There is no essential carb, okay? Our bodies can make all of the blood sugar it needs through gluconeogenesis in the liver. Gluconeogenesis, make new sugar. Our bodies have essential fatty acids that we must consume because our bodies can't make. We also must consume certain essential amino acids or proteins that our bodies cannot make. That's why... Um, a lot of vegan and vegetarian diets are end up being nutrient uh, deficient in a lot of amino acids and other you know, critical B vitamins and omega-3s as well, because some of these we cannot get anywhere but food. Carbohydrate is not the same. There is no essential carbohydrate that we must consume to live. Our bodies can make is we only need about a teaspoon of blood sugar in our bloodstream at a time, and we consume way more than that. And I'm not saying you should go total carnivore or never eat carbs. Um, generally, I recommend about a hundred total carbs a day for most people. If you're an athlete, if you are you know, running marathons, obviously that's going to be a little bit higher. Um, but I don't usually think it's necessary to go below that, especially for menstruating women. It, um, sometimes that can affect cycles if we go a little bit lower than that. But if that helps to understand just how off balance the current standard American diet is. And it's really hard because it's become totally normalized, right? We are, we're surrounded by it. You know, you go to the restaurant and it's a bread basket, it's chips, um, it's pasta. And if you start to weigh, measure and track your food, um, which I highly recommend for anybody on this journey, even if you only do it for two weeks, you can buy a very inexpensive food scale on Amazon and start to weigh your food in grams, which is the most accurate. I used to do it in cups or, you know, it's about this size. And I was wildly off in the amount that I was eating, you know, six strawberries. And that was very different from when I actually weighed the strawberries that I was eating. Um, the carb content was very different. Um, same with nuts and seeds. That was another one where I was wildly off uh, when I started to actually weigh and measure in grams. And then I realized how many carbs I was actually eating. Um, but that's a real eye opener. And it certainly was for me and something I, I highly recommend to anyone. You don't have to do it forever. Once you have tracked your carbohydrate intake like that for a couple of weeks, you learn where the carbs are. You, you can't unsee it. Um, and you 
may have to go back to tracking every once in a while to get back on track. I know I do that sometimes, but um, it's it's a critical education because so many of us, including myself, I was lying to myself about how many carbs I was eating flat out. I thought that because I was eating a lot of fruit and nuts that I was eating a healthy diet and it was nutrient dense ish. Um, I was not eating any grains at the time I was diagnosed with type two diabetes and I was not drinking any alcohol at the time either. Um, so I thought, and I wasn't eating candy. I wasn't eating added sugar either. So, but it turned out I was overeating on grapes and almonds, you guys, seriously, to the point where I was eating like 300 carbs a day of grapes and almonds. And I given myself type two diabetes, right? And that's not unusual. I see that with my coaching clients all the time and there's no judgment, right? Like we're living in the upside down world when it comes to food and what's considered normal. So it it's it does take some effort on our part to turn that ship around for ourselves and be a little different. And that's one of the bonuses of kind of being 50 is we kind of have fewer Fs left to give. And so being different, I'm kind of like, okay, all right, I'm not for everybody. Um, that's okay. And um, and then I love helping getting my coaching clients there too, um, to where we realize that. The bottom line is actually most people don't really care. And most people, if they're your friends and family and they love you, they actually are way more supportive than you realize. Um, and sometimes we just feel like awkward because we're the ones being different, but really nobody else is noticing. When I stopped drinking in 2014, nobody even noticed, like literally maybe one person did. I still have people who are like, oh, you don't drink. And I'm like, yeah. And then you're just noticing now in 2023. So it's kind of one of those things that I felt super awkward about and embarrassed about and thought, oh gosh, everyone's looking at me. And really is, it wasn't the case. Um, and if I did have anybody say anything to me, um, I mean, I literally, if I was, there was a buffet, I'm filling my plate with the, the meat and the veggies and the salad um, the nuts and the seeds, there's, there's always plenty, um, for me to eat, or I'd bring my own stuff. Um, you know, and if you're going to party, you should be bringing something, right. That's the nice thing to do. Um, and so bring something that is good that, you know, is good that you can eat. Um, and I just haven't had anybody say anything, but if they did, I'd be like, yeah, it's great. Like I, like I changed the way I was eating and I just wasn't feeling well. And now I feel awesome. And I'm just like, so thrilled. And then I'll just be like, well, tell me about you. So what's going on with you and change the subject. Like really who cares? Who cares about my health journey? Right? Like, I, like when I am with my friends, I am much more interested in catching up with them and hearing about what's going on with them. I don't get to see my friends as often as I'd like and my family too. So, um, I think the more you realize like nobody, nobody's looking at you, nobody cares. It's not middle school anymore. Even if it feels like it sometimes, um, and the people who love you, they want you to be healthy. They want you to live forever and talk about you're doing it for them so you can be there for them. And so that can help a lot too. Um, I hope that helps. This is your episode on insulin resistance and high blood sugar and how I reversed mine. Um, and I hope everyone has a really happy Thanksgiving and, um, Remember turkey, vegetables, there's lots of ways you can do Thanksgiving healthy, load up on the good stuff and I'll see you after the holiday. Bye.